we've been teaching people to do listing presentations all wrong for like 50 years in this industry. Because we've, we've been teaching them to go in with a script that they rehearse and then they give a performance. And then at the end, the person says, oh, sure, where do I sign? And you've done this like unbelievable job. Well, the fact is sales is not about telling a story. Sales is about finding out a story. Welcome to the Real Estate Sessions podcast, where industry leaders share their stories and offer tips and advice for real estate professionals. Now your host, Bill Rissa of Fidelity National Title in Tampa, Florida. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 184 of the Real Estate Sessions podcast. Thank you, as I always say, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for telling a friend. It's how we continue to grow this little show in our little corner of the internet. And I'm uh, I'm thrilled to interview today's guest. We I've, I've seen Joe Rand of Better Homes and Garden Rand Realty. I've seen him on stage at Inman numerous times, whether it's conducting an interview, whether it's kind of running a panel. And I'll be brutally honest with Joe. I dug what he did at Inman this past uh, January in New York. He was last on stage and they cut his time basically <laughs> in half. <laughs> you know where I'm going, right, Joe? And yeah, you, I know where you, were there. you did that. You did a presentation that I, I just thought rocked because you got everything, squeeze it all in, in the, in the 10 minutes they left you. So anyways, yeah. welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thank you so much for having me, Bill. It's really, it's really a pleasure. I, I really enjoy the way you handle yourself on stage. I think that um, your sensibility kind of lines up a little bit with mine. You like to have some fun, but at the same time, you like to make sure people are kind of getting the message. And so talk about that first. I, I just t- tell me your style, your strategy when you're either talking to your brokerage or you're kind of up on stage? Well, I, I think if I, there's two kind of things there. That One, if I'm doing a presentation myself, that I'm up there talking the way you saw me in January at Inman, um, you know, I, I, I think that anytime someone's giving you the honor of listening to you, that you're they're, they're actually sitting there and they're listening or to whatever extent that they're giving you their attention, you know, that's a gift that they give you. And so you have to honor that. You have to, you know, treat that like valuable time. And I, and I really, I don't get people that go on stage and aren't prepared. I am so hyper prepared every time I go on. Like what you're describing is a situation when I went on, they cut my time and, um, and I was up at the end of the day when everybody was really exhausted. And so it was a really difficult crowd. People were starting to drift out. And you got to get them back, but you can only do that if you really know exactly what you want to say, you know, that you're hyper prepared and you're focused on the audience. You know, it's sort of consistent with the whole theme of what I teach for years, which is, you know, focus on other people's needs, not your own. What does that audience need for me at that moment? And, And what you saw in January in that last 10 minutes of whatever that breakout session was, was that this was a group of people that had been sitting there for three hours and they were exhausted and they just needed some excitement. So I went up there and I did. I pulled out every dumb trick that I have to get an audience attention and get them laughing and wake them up and the whole thing. Not say that the people that went before me put them to sleep, but just if you've been sitting in a chair for three hours, it can be really difficult. Yeah. Um, so that's what I try to do when I'm speaking. It's different. Like with, a, with, with, you know, you're also talking about like when I moderate panels and that to me is a, is a, I, I really enjoy doing that. And it's a totally different dynamic of what I'm trying to accomplish there. Right. Right. You've got a, that's, it's, um, you know, Brad's had some conversations about, moderating panels and how do we do it better? Uh, you do yeah. a great job of it. You you got to go in there with a plan, obviously. 
Yeah, I mean, that's all preparation, too. I mean, we Brad's always very adamant that we and, and the other people that I've moderated for, I do something I do some moderation for RES Media at the real estate uh, uh, CEO conference they have in September. And the key there is also preparation. I really research the people that I'm interviewing to get to know them a little bit. And then I also um, will have a little uh, like a pre-call. But the pre-call is really about just sort of getting a sense of who they are and give them a general sense of the topics that I want to talk about because I don't believe in being scripted. And the real problem I have with too many panels that they have at these conferences is that they're not conversations. They're three people go up there and one of them talks for 10 minutes, the next person talks for 10 minutes, the next person talks for 10 minutes, but they're not talking to each other. And to me, that's that's not as interesting as a conversation among people that they're actually debating and engaging in the ideas that they have in their heads. That's where you really get some, I mean, I've had great panels where I asked a question and then I just sat back for 30 minutes while the two or three people that were there discussed the issue and they just kept bouncing off each other. I never had to ask another question to get them prompted. They just kept going on their own. Yeah. Uh, that's where it's really great. Yeah. That's ideal. That's ideal. Yeah. And like you mentioned it, it's preparation that kind of starts that whole thing off though. It's prepping everybody the right way. And speaking yeah. of preparation in a lame attempt at a segue, <laughs> I know <laughs> I know that, uh, that you live in Rockland County, which is... Uh, up the Hudson River, basically from yep. Manhattan, right? And so, yeah. uh, did you grow up in that area? I grew up in Rockland. This is where my family came in the mid seventies, uh, and I went to high school here. Graduated and thought I would never ever come back. I was adamant that I was never going to live in the suburbs again. Went to Georgetown undergrad, Georgetown Law. Lived in D.C. the whole time. Graduated, got a job in New York City. Lived there for a couple of years. Went out to Stanford uh, to get a master's degree and lived in San Francisco and commuted 45 minutes from San Francisco because I wouldn't live in Palo Alto, which was a suburb. And then uh, came back, worked a little bit uh, as a law professor uh, in a couple of law schools in New York City, uh, but then got pulled into the family business in Rockland, and uh, which is based in Rockland. It's, it's really throughout the Hudson Valley in Westchester and northern New Jersey, but our base is in Rockland. And I was commuting out here for nine years. I commuted from Manhattan, 45 minutes each way to go to to go to Rockland because I would not live in the suburbs. I just was so, so determined to be a city person um, that I just resisted and resisted until it was time to have kids. And I, once I was ready to have kids, I didn't want to spend 45 minutes on the road each day driving so I could continue to live in the city, uh, especially because once you have kids, you don't really do city stuff anymore. Anyway, you're, you're home with the kids anyway. So it didn't really matter where I was going to be. They, they have Netflix in the suburbs just as much as they have Netflix in the city. Uh, they do? That's what I'm home and doing most days. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I live in a place called Nyack, which is right on the Hudson river. It's a beautiful village. I really like where I live. I like my community. Um, and I chafe a little bit at living in the suburbs and not being an urban guy anymore, but you know, you have to make adjustments as you get older. Right. 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 I, I, th- I think my wife and I have been in your neighborhood or across the river. Is is the um, Sleepy Hollow Cemetery? Am I close to you? Yeah. You're about three miles as the crow flies, but there's a big river between me and Sleepy <laughs> Hollow that I have to gotcha. cross. Gotcha. But if I could fly, I, would, I could be there in about four minutes. Gotcha. Yeah. It's it's a very cool place. Obviously, a lot of history there. And How, You went to see the... All the headless horseman stuff and that kind of thing. Yeah, that and just all the all the uh, mausoleums of the rich and famous, right? There's Eisenhower's and all, <laughs> yeah. all these people in this old cemetery. As for a kid who grew up on the West right. Coast, when you get back to the East Coast and the history kind of just kind of over overwhelms you, you know, it's a little different. So yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. Sleepy Hollow was a great story about branding because it it was really an adjunct to Tarrytown. 
but Sleepy Hollow had so much history in the name because of the legend of Sleepy Hollow and that they rebranded um, to Sleepy Hollow and it's really put them more on the map than they were. So it's a, it's a nice little story. Someone should write that up about how you can really just reinvent, a, reinvigorate an old brand and, and change the town because it's very different than it was 15 years ago. And a lot of it's really just branding. Right. Maybe that's book number three. We'll get to that shortly. Yeah. <laughs> so let me, let me, you know, look, I know you're a sports guy. I got to ask you the question that I asked my New York, my New York guests. It's cause it, it's, it's very cut and dried New York usually. And it's either Yankees, Mets, it's Giants, Jets, it's Rangers, Islanders, yeah. Nets, Knicks. Where do you yeah. fall? Where are you? Uh, Yankee fan, Giants fan. I, um, I used to be a much bigger Knicks fan. It's very difficult to root for the Knicks these days. I'm not really much of a hockey fan, but I'm, sort of nominally a Rangers fan, but very big Yankees, very big Giants. Um, my, it's funny because my brother grew up in the same household is adamant Mets Jets and my brother Matt, he's the only other sports fan in the family. So we've had like this, you know, thing going on between us. That said, I'm not like against any other New York teams. Like there are people that are, they, I don't root against the Mets so much as I just sort of, you know, I'm not going to root against the Mets and root for like Philadelphia or something like that. I mean, like I'm going to root for New York generally, um, but I'm more, much more of a Yankees Giants fan, very much so. Yeah, so you you ended up on the right side of the equation, at least as at least as far as having a lot of fun. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, I've had a much better run of it, I think, in my lifetime than my brother, who I think was born. Yeah, he wasn't alive during the 1969 Mets, and he was probably about. 13 the last time the Mets won a world championship so he's had a tough run he's in his 40s now so he's had a a tough uh, tough run and those Jets haven't won since before he was born so right yeah that's not good yeah I I gotta say that's a rough run I imagine living in Manhattan as a Yankees fan and and, and, you know watching the Knicks a little bit or even just going across the river to, to watch the Giants had to be awesome you know what I the thing I used to love more than anything, I never really went to a lot of football games live. I've only been to see live football a couple of times in my life. I've seen a lot of baseball games. And the best experience of baseball games is when I lived in Manhattan and I could just take a train. Like there would be day I can remember very distinctly a day once when I was coming home, my my wife was gonna be out and it was Friday night and I had really nothing to do. And I was just kind of like figuring out what to do. And I'm listening to the radio as I come home and they mention, you know, that um uh, Mike Messina was pitching that night at the stadium and I forget who the other team was, but it was going to be a nice matchup. And I say, you know, I'm going to go to the Yankee game. And I just got home, parked the car, hopped in the train, grabbed a sandwich. And half an hour later, I was sitting, I'd scalped the ticket and I was sitting in Yankee stadium watching a baseball game. And it was awesome. It was awesome. And like, I really, I missed that because, you know, going to a, uh, any kind of baseball game when you live in the suburbs is a, hellish drive park nightmare like the idea of being able to hop in a train and go to a game was just wonderful right yeah i I, just i'll share a quick story i I live now in downtown st petersburg and and i'm a 10 minute walk from the tropicana which is a horrible place to watch a game but still (laughs) i get to go watch baseball and it's 10 minutes 10 minute walk yeah it's awesome so I'm, i'm right with you i did some research and i found your blog the move to suma and yeah. it was great because I had no idea what sumo was. And so I got to figure yeah. that out first. But um, let's talk about that because you've you've been in the suburbs now for 10 years. You have kids. Yeah. You have multiple SUVs, I'm thinking, things like that that you I never do. thought you would own, right? So uh-huh. talk about that blog, how it came about, and, and uh, give us that story. Uh, it's really funny that you ask about that. So when I first – like I said, I was a, I, I grew up as a suburban kid, never wanted to move back, lived in the city for about 17 years 
except for two years when I was living in San Francisco and commuting out to Palo Alto. So I was really just determined to live in Manhattan, even when I had to commute each way. And then I had to make the change because it was, you know, I didn't want to have to go back and forth 45 minutes with the kids and et cetera, et cetera. And I want to get a dog and the whole bit. And so I was, I was contemplating the move and I decided, you know, I should write about this because it's really something I think that a lot of people go through that they, you know, moving to the suburbs is such a, people do it resignedly, right? When you move from the city to the suburbs, nobody's like, oh, I'm so excited to move to the suburbs and leave this urban uh, oasis behind me. Um, they all move to the suburbs sort of like, oh, I got to move. It's time. I got to go. Um, and I always find it funny because there's always like an article. Every month there's a new article about how like millennials, they're saying they'll never move to the suburbs. And I'm like, it's not millennials. It's it's 25-year-olds never want to move to the suburbs. Like when I was 25, I was Gen X. I never wanted to move to the suburbs. When, you know, when the, when, when the baby boomers were 25, they were living in communes. I think they were planning on getting a high ranch in some uh, some little uh, development somewhere. No, nobody wants to move to the suburbs. So I, I went through this process. And I said, let me write about it. Let me write about my goal of trying to not convert to a suburbanite, that I'm going to move to the suburbs in body, but I'm going to maintain my urban sensibility of being a big city guy. And so SUMA was a, an acronym. I, I was pretending that where I was moving was just another hot Manhattan neighborhood, all of which have these Cute little names like Nolita, north of Little Italy, Tribeca, Triangle Below Canal, Soho, south of Houston. Um, so I was moving to Suma, suburbs of Manhattan, the, the hot new neighborhood <laughs> in New York City. Um, and so I wrote about the blog. I probably did a hundred or so posts over the course of five or six years, just about my experiences. I, you know, I wrote it for its spirit sporadically, but I had fun with it. I did things like I was tracking when famous people would move to the suburbs. I would welcome them to the suburbs. I was like, hey, Beyonce, welcome to the suburbs and stuff like that. But I think the best posts were the ones that I just wrote about my life. Of, you know, when I first had a kid and uh, that experience of going through that, getting a dog. Uh, I had a funny experience when I bought a boat and then almost destroyed it the first time I took it out. Um, and actually, I'm turning, you know, you mentioned you made a joke about my next book. That's probably my next book is to turn that blog into some sort of little autobiographical, you know, short, humorous kind of take on what it's like to move to the suburbs. Because, frankly, I'd like to, having written two books, I'd like to write a book that the people that I hang out with who are not in real estate would be able to read. Because I I post on Facebook, I wrote a book, and they're like, oh, I'm going to read it. And I'm like, you're not in real estate. Why would you read my book? So I can write something that will be applicable to all the people that live in my neighborhood that do not list and sell homes, you know? Joe, let's say you're you're in your early 50s. Am I accurate there? I am 51, going to be 52, yeah. Do you see a move back to the city somewhere down the line? Um, yes, I absolutely do. Now, my kids are really young. My kids are six and eight, so I've got okay. at least 12 years before I get them out of the house on a daily basis. Um, so I'll be in my 60s when that happens. But I'll tell you, man, I don't get why people don't retire to the cities whether it's Manhattan or anywhere else, because, you know, I understand you want to be in a place where you can go play golf and stuff like that. But I mean, how many people really play golf and how much do you really play golf? Like to me, living in Manhattan when I'm 65 and don't have kids in the house, when I've got enough money to be able to afford it, if I, if I, hopefully I will, um, like, you know, awesome. All the culture you could ever want. You can go to museums all day, you go to restaurants all the time and you go to restaurants and it's great because like you can get to any restaurant in Manhattan at five 30. There's nobody there. That's when like the, that's what all the seniors <laughs> eat. Right. So you go there at five 30, walk right into Le Cirque or wherever else you want to eat. And you go right. And like, and, and also you don't have to drive. 
which becomes a problem as you get older. And um, uh, you don't have to climb stairs. You get an elevator building. So like, to me, it is a, that's a no brainer, you know, spend seven, eight months in Manhattan, the other three, the other four or five months in a warm weather place where I can play golf and swim and stuff like that. That's my dream. You got my dream right there. That's great. My dream is also getting this eight-year-old and six-year-old out of my house. That's the other thing. <laughs> Spoken like uh, a true dad. That's sure. Yeah, absolutely. everybody's doing <laughs> Yep, yep. I'm sure. I, everyone tells me, oh, when they get out of the house, you're going to miss all these days. I'm like, okay, but, you know, all right, fine. I'll miss yeah. it, but, like, I still I still kind of ache for it. I'll, I'll deal with that when it, when it gets here. Um, <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me ask you about uh, your – you know, so you you head you head off to Georgetown, which you know is part yeah. of your part of your escaping the suburbs because you, you of course yeah. you go to a school that's right in a <laughs> in a in a great city, but you get yeah. you do your undergrad work, you get your law degree, uh, and then you you end up coming back to Manhattan. Was real estate on the radar at this time, or you know, let's talk about your first job out of school and and yeah, and no, not even a little bit, not okay. even a little bit. I mean, I got my license at eighteen. I mean, I worked for my mom. My mom started a real estate company in, in 1983. She got her license in the late 70s, like typical kind of pattern of women going into the workforce. She had three young kids. She got a, you know, she got a license so she could do the kind of, you know, flexible hours, the whole thing. Found she had a massive talent for it, uh, even more of a talent for managing, started the company. And then like in the mid 80s, when I was in high school, I used to work for the company. I would, I would mow lawns. I would clean the offices. I was a weekend secretary. When I was 18, I got my license. So I, I worked most summers. I worked in real estate in college and law school. I would try to sell one house and that would be beer money for the year, you know? Right. Um, but then when I grad, when I, then I was going to go to law school. And then once I was in law school, um, I was pretty adamant on, you know, being a lawyer. And so when I graduated, my first job out of law school was I was, I was a clerk for a judge on the Second Circuit, the United States Court of Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, which is a very, very um, good job. It's a very high prestige kind of legal job that opens the doors to a lot of other things. I was working for a judge on on the court level right below the United States Supreme Court, and he was a great guy, and I had a really good experience working there. A very intellectual job. He did a lot of reading of briefs and writing memos and analyzing the law and stuff like that. And I really enjoyed it. And that was a great job. That was my first job. My second job then was working for a law firm called Deborah Boys and Plimpton in Manhattan, which is a wonderful law firm and a very, very, I mean, just a great law firm. But it just didn't work for me. I hated that job. I really did. It was it was a grind, you know. I mean, being at a big law firm, and I don't know if it's any different today, but being at a big law firm and and thinking about like advancing yourself. The, the, the best thing I ever heard about, like sort of the partnership track of big law firms is that it's a it's a hot dog eating contest where first prize is you get to eat more hot dogs. Okay? <laughs> That's great. That it is a brutal life. And I would be there at you know 1 a.m. punching documents through a folder and everything else. And right next to me would be a partner who is in his 60s who had been doing this for 30 years. I'm like, why is he still here? Well, what is he doing here? And that's I didn't want that life. So then I Started thinking about because I'd always been interested in the in the intellectual aspects of the law about becoming a law professor. And that's when I did my fellowship at Stanford uh, for two years, taught there, got a master's, uh, went on the teaching circuit and was teaching for a couple of years. But then it didn't really I didn't love teaching either. I mean, that was the funny thing. I, I loved the teaching part of it. I loved being in a classroom. I loved working with the students. But in order to advance yourself in in legal academia, it's not about how well you teach. It's about how well you how well you can publish 
articles and law reviews that really nobody ever reads. They just are prestige pieces. And I did a couple of them and I did okay with it, but not enough to really get me the kind of job I wanted. Um, and so I'm sitting there struggling through being a law professor. And meanwhile, my brothers had started going to work for my mom in the company and they were loving it and having a great time. And they're like, you know, you are a lawyer and you can teach and we need someone to be a lawyer for the company and we need someone to manage our education program. And they pulled me in and I did it part-time at first. I thought I would just do it part-time while I continued teaching and eventually it sucked up all my energies and all my passions. And I found that this is what I actually like to do. Uh, so I've been doing it for almost 20 years and, and I really enjoy it. Let, let's talk about what Rand Realty looked like when you started versus what it looks yeah. like today. I think the way it works, my brothers got into the business in like 97. And at that point, it was about a $6 million company with about two or three offices. And then over the next couple of years, they built it up. And I think when, when I joined in 01, 02, we were about a $20 million company in terms of gross commission income and, and gross revenues. And I think we had about 10 or 12 offices. Uh, today, we have about 28 offices and we'll do about 60, 65 million in revenue. Plus, we'll do another 10 probably in affiliate businesses, which were in mortgage and title and insurance and some other stuff as well. So, yeah, so I've been here. And, and part of that is, is the you know inflation. Part of that is um, the growth of the market. And part of it is the fact that we've worked hard to build the company. And I think we've been pretty successful doing it. You talk about the the training. I'm sure that the, the attorney side, the the you know the the law part of it is probably not very fun compared to what you're doing on the agent side with the training. Is that fair assessment? The, um, basically, the story of my last 15 years in the business has been my 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 eager attempt to minimize as much legal work as I do every day and and pass that off to somebody else and be able to do other things. I hate the legal part of my job. There's nothing. People always say, uh, they'll say something like, I hate lawyers. And they'll look at me like, oh, sorry, Joe. And I'm like, what do you mean you hate? Sorry, I hate lawyers. No one hates lawyers more than other lawyers. I mean, I hate being a lawyer. Um, it really was not what I, what, you know, here's what's funny. Um, here's what's funny, Bill, about this is that when I was a kid, my whole childhood, people would tell me, oh, you're going to be such a lawyer. You're such a lawyer. Because I was always talking and arguing and debating and persuading and all that kind of stuff. And so they saw me as a lawyer, and and I have a, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I have a talent for the intellectual aspects of law, just not for the actual practice of law. Um, but it wasn't they were wrong. It wasn't that I should be a lawyer. It was that I should be a salesperson. It was that I should be doing. I should be an entrepreneur. I should be doing what I'm doing now, which is persuading people. Or I should have been a teacher. That was the way they should have read it. But unfortunately, they kept telling me I should be a lawyer. So I ended up going to law school in three years of my life, you know, right away, and then a couple more years working before I figured it out. Because I love the competitive aspects of running a business. I love, I really love sales in the in the way that I try to do it. As you as you read about in the book, it's a different way of doing sales, but it's it's I, I love the working with people and persuading them and and things like that. Um, and that's what that's what I'm, I tend to be good at. And and so yeah, so the the legal aspects of my job, I I do as little of it as possible. I pass off as much of it to an outside counsel as I can. And I try to focus mostly on creating stuff. I create courses. I teach agents. I, I do market. I create marketing. I'm, I'm writing books. I'm, you know, I'm doing stuff where I'm, I'm creating, and that's what I enjoy the most. You mentioned the books. Yeah, I, I went out of order. I started 
actually this week, right, and finished it late last night. I, I read your your newest book, which is How to Be a Great Real Estate Agent: uh, The Principles of Client Oriented Real Estate, which you call Core. And yeah. uh, let's. I want to talk about that book quite a bit, actually, because first of all. Uh, you're an awesome storyteller, uh, Bill in the Rock Salt. Um, I, I think that per, my personal favorite of the whole thing was is is Tom Seaver versus Kerry Wood and that analogy. Oh, you're a draw. baseball guy. Yeah, oh sure. my gosh, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I, I worked for the Padres for 12 years. I mean, I, baseball's in my blood. So, yeah, um, talk. Let's talk about that book and and it really let's explain to the audience, the listeners, you know, your your take on what core is and why it's so important. Um, core client-oriented real estate is this idea that we need to orient the business around the needs of the client. That, you know, when you talk about the business with people inside the industry, they always tend to define the business by these eras. And they talk about the broker-centric or broker-oriented era, which was everything up to like the 1970s. And then from the 1970s, they talk about being agent-oriented. And that was when splits went up and agents got more power. And and I remember it was about 10 or 12 years ago that I had this insight that really what we are in right now is the agent-oriented era has ended. And we are now in the client-oriented era. We are in an era when clients started in the late 90s when we put the inventory out on the internet and we started to empower consumers to do their own searches. But it has continued. You know, Technology empowers consumers. And we have not adapted well enough to the idea that it really needs to be about the consumer. The industry is not about agents and it's not about brokers. It's not about us, it's about them. And I think we have lost that a little bit. And my, so my first book, Disruptors, Discounters and Doubters, introduced that concept of the idea that we need to stop thinking about ourselves and start thinking about our clients. And that was really a book about the industry mindset. And then this book, How to Be a Great Real Estate Agent is about, is really my training program in a narrative form, um, is about what agents need to do that, which is, being more outwardly directed and focusing on what does my client need, thinking expansively about what they need, and then creatively about how to give it to them as a means of everything we do can be more focused outward rather than inward, that we got to stop thinking of people as leads and start thinking of them as clients who need services. And our whole approach has to be, you know, how can I help these people? And if you do that, I think that's the, the key to success. Because I look at what top agents in the industry do to generate business and how they're successful. And what I see is that they're really good at their jobs. Like they're not, you go look at the roster. We're having our award ceremony next week, you know, so we're going to have a couple hundred people that get awards and, and they come up on the stage and they get in. And every one of them that walks across the stage, I know them. And like, I'd be willing to give them a referral of my best friend because they're really good at handling clients. Like the ones who get awards and gen we have this idea that like people that do a lot of business, that doesn't mean they're any good at their job. No, it actually probably means they're really good at their job. There are exceptions and we always remember the exceptions, but the fact is, you know, good plumbers get a lot of business, good doctors get a lot of business and good real estate agents get a lot of business. If they're good at their jobs, it, it shows. Um, and that means what they're doing is they're focusing on clients. They're doing great work for their clients, and that's where they become successful. They're not hawking fizzbos. They're not like beating up on internet leads. They're they're getting business because their reputation. And when they get a, a an opportunity, they know how to convert it because they're really good at working with people. One of my one of my favorite takeaways from the book uh, was you had a manager who said. Uh, I would refer any of my bro yeah. any of my agents, you know, yeah. to to a friend, and there are not a whole lot of managers of a brokerage who could say that, right? No, I, I asked that question. <laughs> I go, I was just actually at a at a um, speaking for a bunch of brokers uh, in a different part of the country. Probably about a hundred of them were in the room, and 
I ask a question I ask everybody when I speak. I say, how many, when I'm talking about the competency problem in the industry, mm-hmm. I say, how many of you would be willing to list with half of the agents in your market? And nobody ever raises their hand. In fact, in this last time, one guy raised his hand and I was amazed because when I asked that question, I've asked it dozens of times, thousands of people. Nobody ever raises their hand when I ask them, how many of you would be willing to work with or refer out more than half the agents in your market? And he had raised his hand and I'm like, wow, you're the only person who raised their hand. And then everybody pointed out to me that he was the head of the board, like he was the head of the board of realtors. So like he had to say, well, of course, you know, the members of the board of realtors, uh, anyone who's a realtor is uh, worthy of a referral. But besides that, nobody ever raised their hand. And then I asked the even worse question of the brokers. I say, how many of you would want to work with more than half the agents at your company or at your office if you're a manager? And then they all kind of laugh because it's one of these awful parts of the industry, this idea that we inflict these agents who are not well-trained and not well-educated about the industry and not particularly good at their jobs, and we inflict them on consumers. But we wouldn't be willing to inflict them on like our mother-in-law to list their home. Um, and what we need to do, and, and the first reaction people say is, oh, you say, so we should fire half the agents? I'm like, no, we shouldn't fire half the agents. We should better train all the agents. We should do a better job of, of teaching them how to do the, the work of helping people buy and sell homes, not they come into a new agent training program and they're going to spend the next 25 hours learning how to read scripts to convert FISBOs and expireds and, you know, beat up people at an open house. You talk a lot in the book about that, that whole process that trying to reimagine the way that, uh, you know, an agent looks at what they do. They, they shouldn't yeah. be doing presentations. They should be, you know, doing consultations, right? Um, yeah. So talk a little bit about how that flip has to, it's just got to happen. Otherwise, we're just going to be stuck in the same place we're at. It's sort of this mentality that everything you do in the in, in the business, take take stop, and think for a minute. And whose need am I servicing here? What what am I doing for the person I'm about to call? What am I doing for the person I'm about to approach or send a mailing to? Or am I doing something for to satisfy their needs, or am I just like shouting at them to market myself? Um, you know. So the example you give. You know, we, we, we've been teaching people to do listing presentations all wrong for like 50 years in this industry because we've, we've been teaching them to go in with a script that they rehearse and then they give a performance. And then at the end, the person says, oh, sure, where do I sign? And you've done this like unbelievable job. Well, the fact is sales is not about telling a story. Sales is about finding out a story. You know, someone asked me recently. What's the difference between marketing and sales? And, I, and this may be a title of a book I have coming up, so nobody steal it. But that they, they asked me the difference between marketing and sales. They said, marketing is where you tell your story. Sales is about finding out their story. If you want to be great at sales, it's not about being a glib talker. It's about connecting with somebody. And you can't connect with them until you know a little bit about them. You know, so most professionals, you go meet with a doctor, you go meet with a lawyer, you go meet with a financial services professional, do your financial planning. When you sit down with them, they don't talk about themselves. They ask questions about you because they don't know how to solve your problem and how to help you until they ask you questions about yourself, until they learn about you. And it's the complete opposite of what we teach real estate agents to do, which is to go in to talk to a seller that they've maybe never met and know almost nothing about 
and to go in and start doing a song and dance. And that to me is where we get our reputation. That that to me is not an effective way of presenting yourself. I've have had that same mindset for a long time, but I'm not a realtor. I'm not a, I'm not a, I feel that I've met a little bit of a disadvantage when I talk to agents about that process because I've never done a I've never had to go sit in front of a seller. But reading your book and seeing that laid out, it's crystal clear to me that that is not only a, a better way to to be a better um, a better realtor, but a much more fun way. Just a, 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 yeah. a, a oh, yeah, I mean, it, so it much easier. So much easier. Exactly right. Oh. It, I mean, think about like you go into it. It's so much pressure to deliver that script. I mean, you go in and you're like, uh, so let me tell you about my 23 point marketing plan, and and then you're and the, you're, 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 you're you have something memorized, and it never sounds as good coming out of your mouth as it does out of the trainer's mouth because they wrote it for their own syntax and their own, you know, the way they speak. And when you're trying to speak like somebody else, and it never really works. And so you, you know, it, it's no fun. Meanwhile, you go in and, and the first thing you sit down with somebody, so tell me about yourself. Tell me why you bought this house. I love that question. I love the idea of going in and someone is thinking of selling their house and say, so how long have you lived here? 15 years. Tell me about why, what convinced you to buy the house. Tell me about the story about when you bought it. Because people love telling stories about themselves and they love telling that story. And it's a, actually good information to have. And and, the, and you can always tie it together because you say, well, that's really interesting because generally speaking, the person who buys your house is probably going to have a lot in common with you when you bought the house. They may not have anything in common with you now, but when you bought the house, you were a young couple and you had your first kid and you were looking for a starter home and you just moved to the area. And I'll bet that when this house is sold, the person that buys it is probably somebody who's in the same sort of position. Not always, but there's a pretty good bet. That's going to happen. And so you, what you're doing is you're really saying, help me, Mr. Seller, help me figure out who I should be targeting with uh, with my marketing, because I want to target the person who bought the house last time. And that's you. Yeah. And that's a really great way to, to engage with somebody and to connect with them. Yeah. Tell me about yourself is probably the most powerful conversation starter out there, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's the easiest thing. I mean, as I say in the book, and it's it's funny when I talk to audiences about it, I always say, to the all right, all the all the women who unmarried women, you know, you've gone on dates. Is it better when a guy talks about himself or when he asks about you? And they're all like, "Well, what guy?" They've been on a million dates where the guy sits down and starts talking about himself, and that's what guys think they have to do. They have to like flash a peacock's tail to impress a lady, but that's not how you engage with somebody. You don't impress somebody by talking about yourself. You impress them by showing them interest in them. That's what that's what interests them. You know, that's what that's what connects to them. Right. But that's not the, you know, you ask the, the, you ask the question, like flipping the mindset, you know, that's one way to flip it, to say, well, I'm sitting down with someone trying to get them to list their home. I should be asking questions about them, not talking about myself, but there's an, it goes with everything we do, like every aspect of the business. Think about like, we have these scripts called neighborhood where the script is, uh, hi, it's Joe Rand from Rand Realty. Uh, We just listed a home in the neighborhood and we know when we list one home, three others soon come on the market. So I'm calling to find out when do you plan on moving? I talked about script for like five years before I realized that it was like a horrible way to live to try to get people to make calls like that. And that call is all about the agent. It's about saying to somebody through an artifice of saying that we just listed a home and other homes come on the market to prompt the person to say, when do you plan on moving in the hopes that they might say, well, in about six months, and then you can move, move into the next part of your script. And if they say, well, we just bought, bought the house. We're not moving anytime soon. You say, well, thanks. And you hang up or you say, well, do you know anybody else who's planning on moving or whatever? But it's all about you. And so we've been trying to, we've, we worked on trying to come up with 
things you can call people about that are about them. So, you know, like calling a neighborhood when you when you have an open house coming and calling and apologizing for the disruption, say, hi, the Smiths asked me to call you to say that, you know, we're doing an open house on Sunday from one to four. And we want to apologize if there are people parked in front of your house or um, if there's some people driving down the street, don't know where they're going and, and et cetera, et cetera, or just for any disturbance in my cause. And I've had people do thousands of those calls and get no negative reaction. Nobody hangs up on them. So, most of the time they just get, oh, okay, thanks a lot. And they hang up. But people don't get mad because you, you frame the call as a courtesy that you're doing something for them, not about you. And that's just a much more powerful way of trying to engage with people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, way easier. <laughs> so, oh, much easier. So, look, so much easier. If you're listening to this episode, I am telling you this book is, it, it is the roadmap. It's a, it's in a, told in a very funny kind of a warm way. And not, and you also, you have, uh, you know, you throw out some links in the book to content on your website where people can actually pick up some of these tools that you use with Rand Realty, right? Yeah, we're working on, we're putting some stuff up every day, trying to get more and more content up there of things. And, but if it's not up there and it's something you want to look at, if you just email me on Facebook and say, hey, I'd love to see a copy of this, I'll send you a copy. Like I had somebody recently want to see what a, a buyer consultation guide looked like. And, um, and so I sent it to him. And, you know, people, you know, I will say one of the reactions I've gotten to this book is my own agents going to me and saying, what are you out of your mind? What are you nuts? This is like all the stuff you've been teaching us for 10 years. And now you're going to give it out to the world and including giving out like all our marketing materials and things like that. And, and I sort of have two reactions to that. One is, yeah, I've been doing this for like 10 or 15 years. And if I've gotten 20% penetration to my own company of agents who are actually living and doing it, I'll be thrilled because like, it's tough to break through this mentality that you know, agents doing things, the, you know, the uh, really abiding by a new way of thinking. Um, and that's part of the other part of it is that, well, this is the stuff I would, these are all ideas that I've had over 10 years. I've got other ideas that we're doing now that, you know, that are still, that, you know, didn't make the book yet because they're not yet, they're not yet um, fleshed out or they're not yet fully vetted. They haven't worked yet. So um, there's always, we're always moving forward with new stuff and new ideas um, and new implementations of the same concepts. So it's and, and I also feel like, you know, from a company perspective, people that read this book and Bill, I'm always so thrilled to hear when somebody has a reaction to it the way you did um, or the way just I think recently on your podcast, you had um, Melanie from Brell in Toronto, who I'd never met, who had so, so many nice things to say about it. And really, it, it connected with her in the same way. Really smart people in the industry the, the kind of they, they see this and a lot of times they're like. You know, I didn't learn anything from this book, but it validated all the things I've been doing my whole career. And I'm like so happy to hear somebody tell me that I'm actually doing things right for once that I'm, you know, I'm not supposed to be calling and manipulating people into setting appointments and things like that. And so what I love about this book is that hopefully it gets read by people. I mean, it should be a recruiting thing. People, when they read it, if it touches them, they hopefully they'll want to come work at my company. And, and that's a that's a value that I have here is that, you know, we have built this company and every tool and every system in the company around this concept. So if you believe in the concept, then you really should, you know, if you're in our market or you look at working with us, but not that you have to work with us to do it, you can work anywhere. But it, what I really like about it is the idea that the people that are attracted to the company because of the book are exactly the kind of agents I want to work for my company. Right. I want working here is exactly because, and, and, and the kind of people, like if I ever did start some sort of like, coaching or, 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 you know, mentoring with agents outside my company. It's, you know, the kind of people that 
are motivated by the book are exactly the kind of people that I want to work with. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're people that get it. They, they know that the business and like it's, and it's really almost like life. This is what life is about. Life is about focusing on the needs of other people and trying to help them in everything that you do. And if you adopt this philosophy in your business, it tends to, it tends to affect the way you live your life as well. And, and that I think is really powerful. And those are the kind of people I want to surround myself with people that are other directed and, you know, want to make their business a better, they want to make their lives better. They want to make their world a better place. You know, that was that too come by. I was that too. Like, <laughs> on the Not at all. Like, like, <laughs> no, but I, it seems to me like you're the perfect guy to, to bring that to broker owners, right? If, if it can start there, if they can embrace that and see the power you know, then maybe yeah. that's, that's something they could turn around and kind of, you know, distill down to their agents and, in and, and then build their brokerages up as long as they're not in uh, Westchester or Rockland. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, 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 they are. You know, it's funny. One of my good friends in the industry is a guy named Phil Ferranda, uh, who runs a company in Westchester County who competes with my company, but he's a good friend in the industry. It happens that we were born on the same day, 51 years ago. Uh, he was born, I think about an hour and a half after me. Um, and so we always, you know, email each other on our birthdays. We see each other a couple of times a year, usually at events or things like that. Um, and you know, he's a guy, he bought 20 books, of, 20 copies of my first book for all his agents. Like he's a guy who gets it that, you know, he runs a company that I think is a really good company and it's, it competes with me in a, in a, in a market, but like, it's a big market. There's abundance. I don't, I don't worry about that. I don't worry about someone reading my book and getting the secrets. I mean, they, you know, the more the merrier, if everybody's raising the, the industry standard, I think that's good for everybody. Um, and so he bought 20 books for his agents to read and was not threatened by the idea that they might read the book and leave because he runs a really good company. I think the people that should be threatened are people that really do. Are, there are a lot of not so good brokers out there and their agents are working for them for and not just in my market, but in every market that you look and you say, why are these people working at this company that doesn't really do anything for them? What are they what are they getting out of it? And I'm amazed by that. I'm, I'm amazed that the thing that confounds me more than anything else about this industry, Bill. And it, it just ama- it astounds is how many consumers still work with mediocre or worse agents, like really bad agents, and how many good agents work at bad brokerages. I, I don't understand how that, and I think that's going to change. I think it is changing, but it's not happening fast enough. Like they work with their you know, their brother-in-law's best friend, you know, because they were contact and the person sold three houses last year. Like we have an industry where the average agent makes less than the people who answer the phones at the offices. Right. Right. That's our industry. Yeah. And what, and, and what, and the sad part is that consumers who aren't choosy enough keep those mediocre or worse brokerages and mediocre or worse agents in business because they don't expect enough out of them. Agents don't expect enough out of their brokerages and consumers don't expect enough out of their agents. And that just is a, yeah, it's, a it's, it's confounding. It's, and it's, it's getting better. It's changing. So I think as it changes and gets better, I think the cream will rise to the top and the best brokerages will do more of the share of the business and the best agents will do more of a share of the business. And that will be good for the industry. That will be really good for the industry. You know, I haven't read your first book yet. I will shortly. Um, but it seems to me that that's, you, this is kind of what you're covering there, that, that there are op- a lot of opportunities have popped up because, you know, realtors are not the professionals they should be. And, yeah. the, and the way to protect yourself from, 
the, the disruptors and discounters and doubters is to do exactly what you say. Focus all that energy on the client, be of service, um, help them even when you're not getting paid. I love that line. Yeah. And, and do all those things because that's something that AI or an iBuyer can't do yet and probably never will. Yeah, you, what you did was, yeah, it's absolutely right. That's the absolute thesis of the book, is of the first book, Disruptors, Discounters, and Doubters, is the idea that people in the industry, we've not done enough to improve the experience that consumers have when they buy or sell a home. And because we haven't done enough to improve that experience, there are disruptors coming in to threaten our relationship because they'll do a better job of it. And the example I use actually in both books is the, the Zillow experience, is the fact that, you know, that we we knew people want to know what their home is worth, but instead of like just answering the question, we made them sit through a CMA presentation, which was basically our listing presentation in order to get the answer. Like if people call this for a free CMA, it wasn't like we picked up the phone and said, wait, hold on, give me five minutes and I'll call you back and I'll give you the answer. No, it was, well, let me set an appointment. I'll come in and I'll give you a whole song and dance. Meanwhile, Zillow comes in and just press a button and you can find out and they build a $10 billion business out of that. And that's happening all over. I mean, that's going to happen again if we don't do enough to improve the consumer experience. I mean, that's what the iBuyer thing. The iBuyer is all about the fact that if the if the consumer experience of selling a house doesn't get better or easier or buying a house better or easier, then we open up the opportunity for people to come in who are doing it in a, in a who are making it simpler. Even if it costs more money, I mean, selling with right now you sell with an iBuyer, you're going to get less money in your pocket than if you sell with a broker. That may not always be the case, but it's the case today. But sometimes people are like, "Well, I'll take less money if I can get out in three days, or I can get out in a week." You know, it's worth it to me to, you know, because I have to move. Or I think that the iBuyers will end up with a a market share that relies a lot on transplants. People have to move really quickly. Uh, divorces, estate sales near foreclosure or near short sale situations where people really, they don't care about the money. They just got to get out. Right. You know? They just got to, they got to get the place closed. Right. Wow. I've, I've went way over time with you here, Joe. I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap this up with the same question I've asked every guest. Uh, and that is if you could give one piece of advice to a new agent, just getting started in the business, what would it be? I think I might know, but go ahead. Uh, I'm not, I, the self-serving answer that you think you know is I'll tell them to read my book. Right. Which they absolutely should do, which they could buy on Amazon, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, I would say that here's the advice I would give somebody starting on the business is have some money put away so you can live for six months, right? So that you're not desperate to get a deal. And then interview with six brokers, at least three, at least three, as many as six. And choose the broker that you think will help you build your career the best. Not necessarily the one that's going to give you the biggest share of the first deal you do, that you're going to make an extra 10% or 20% on a deal. Because, you know, the point is, don't worry about your don't worry about your compensation yet. Worry about the training you're going to get. Worry about the kind of mentoring you're going to get. And then if you can, try to partner up, you know, join a team, whatever the case may be, with somebody who's really good at their job. And not just a lead generator, but really good at the job who can teach you the job. Because, I mean, this is the kind of business where we should have some sort of formalized uh, apprenticeship system, and we don't. And we really should be encouraging. And that's why, I've, you know, a lot of brokers fought teams. We didn't fight teams because we believe in the idea that it actually helps, you know, junior agents get their legs underneath them if they can work underneath somebody who actually knows what they're doing. Um, so I would say that find a really good broker in your market. 
and then find a really good agent and in, in one way or another, try to learn from that agent to learn how to do the business and, and, and worry more about that. When you take a client out, you know what to actually do with that client. Then you're going to worry about how do you get clients? The clients will come if you learn how to do the job. Right. Joe, what's the best way for people to reach out to you? Uh, you can find me at, uh, well, uh, Joe, at JoeRand.com, or you can find me on Facebook if you just search Joe Rand or Joseph Rand. Um, I generally accept all friend requests I get from people, and uh, I have a Facebook page. You can join that to get updates and things like that. And, um, and I generally reply to all my emails. So if you email me on Facebook or uh, Joe at JoeRand.com, uh, you'll get a reply if you want to ask me a question or you want to send me, you know, want me to send you some some examples of things or whatever. I'm always happy to do it. Anytime, you know, anybody who's who's following the book and excited about the book gets me excited you know, about what I do. So I'm always happy to talk to people. Joe, thank you so much. And I, I'm going to say it one more time, anybody listening, I'll put in the show notes the links to both books. You can get them through Amazon. Uh, and I'm uh, disruptors, discounters, and doubters is sitting on my phone. I, I'm that weird guy that does read books on my phone. <laughs> so, that, so that's my next one. But th this was awesome. really a wonderful episode. Thank you so much for all that information. Um, and I, I might really have I, I might bring you back on down the road for some more conversation. So, Bill, anytime you want. When we get into baseball season, we can talk more about that. But anytime you want to talk, Bill, um, I would love to. I enjoyed this immensely, and, and I'm really a big fan of your podcast. So thank you for having me on.